Well, friends, tonight and tomorrow morning and then on Sunday morning, uh, we have a, a guest who is here to minister the word to us. Uh, his name is Gary Hendricks. He's the pastor of Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Mebane, North Carolina, and he has served there for 46 years-ish. Is that right? 49, okay, 49. My, my information was out of date. 49 years. Uh, <laughs> I know that he has preached in this pulpit before. Many of you all have benefited from his teaching over the years. And some of you all have called him friend for many years. Uh, I have benefited from his pulpit ministry and the Lord has many times blessed me uh, through his word ministered by our brother uh, and in some significant ways in different periods of my life. Um, and I do have the privilege of, of uh, well, I guess of calling him friend myself. A few years ago when I was going through a particularly dark time, uh, Pastor Hendricks reached out to me and and said some things to me directly that were of great help to me. Uh, it is our privilege to have, to have him come tonight and minister to us. Uh, he pointed out during a lunch today with the missions committee and the elders that uh, he is not uh, an, an expert, especially in the topic of missions, but that's not why we brought him here. He is a man who has loved the local church and served the local church and has loved the word of God and taught the word of God to the local church for many years. Uh, and we, in our desire to be a church that knows the word of God better and has a, a stronger desire, uh, a more robust zeal to make that word known to the nations, the word of God, Jesus Christ himself, uh, that's why we've had our brother come to minister to us this weekend. Uh, so let me, let me pray for him. Uh, let's all pray for him together and ask God to bless us. Our Father in heaven, do have mercy on us now and do bless us through the, the ministry of your word. We know that your word is powerful. You sanctify your people by the truth and your word is the truth. We pray that you would attend your word with power as our, our brother speaks to us tonight. We pray that you would help him and you would help us. And you would use this occasion for eternal good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is an honor, a privilege to preach the Word of God anywhere at any time. But I'm particularly thankful for this opportunity in part because as you get older, you become more reflective. And um, many, many years ago, I preached in this church and in this pulpit uh, never thinking I would ever come back, but here I am, so I can indulge in some memories while I'm here. I'll begin with a question I'm curious 
almost perhaps comical question. Is there anything that we can do, anything that you can do as a church to hasten the return of Christ? Is there anything that you can do as a church to hasten the return of Christ? Well, if we mean by that, can we cause God to change the day appointed from all eternity and carefully hidden away in his secret counsels for the return of Christ and the end of the world? Can we do that? Well, the answer is obviously no. But if we mean by that question, is there something that the Bible says must happen before Christ returns? And is it something that we can help bring to pass? Well, if that's the question, the answer is yes, perhaps so. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, Christ said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, whatever that statement was intended to communicate, it indicates that declaring the gospel of Christ to every nation is part of God's program and plan before the end. Therefore, if we go and preach the gospel or send others to go and preach the gospel, we are helping accomplish something that must happen before our Lord returns. Now, perhaps that is one of the most obscure motivations for missions that you will ever hear. But at least it's something to think about. I understand my assignment this weekend to be that of providing a measure of encouragement to you as a church in the work of sending the gospel, or more precisely, sending preachers of the gospel to the nations. I hope I have that right. If that is what you have been thinking, and if you have given it very much biblical thought, then you're probably expecting that I will turn you to Acts chapter 13 at some point in this weekend. So let's do that right off. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Now we'd like to read the first four verses, Acts 13, reading verses 1 through 4, and I am reading from the New King James Version. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, 
in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. It's a very significant text with regard to churches sending missionaries. There are three lessons that I would like to draw from this text. One this evening and two more in the morning. This evening I would like to focus upon the peculiar distinguishing identity of the first sending church. The peculiar distinguishing identity of the first sending church, that being the church in Antioch of Syria. Now, in covering these points of identity, please understand I'm not suggesting that these four things are the criteria for becoming a sending church. I'm not suggesting that if you become these things, that you will thus become a sending church. The Bible doesn't say that. I don't have the right to say that. But these were distinguishing points of identity that belonged to this church, which was the first church to send foreign missionaries. Four points of identity. Number one, it was a multi-ethnic church. It was a multi-ethnic church. In fact, it was the first multi-ethnic church of which we are aware. Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire. There was a considerable Jewish community population in the city. But when Christians first came to Antioch, fleeing the persecution that surrounded the stoning of Stephen, they did preach to the Jews, but they did not limit their preaching to the Jews in a, in a rather remarkable event. Look at chapter 11, and I'm going to ask you to turn back and forth between Acts 11 and Acts 13. If you would turn back to Acts chapter 11, look at verse 19. Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose 
over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Okay? That sounds like a contradiction of what I just said. But notice verse 20. But, conjunction of contrast, but some of them, some of those who were scattered from Jerusalem were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Some preached to the Hellenists. Now, what does that mean? Ordinarily, the word Hellenist uh, refers to a Greek speaker. We might think that it's simply a reference to Greek-speaking Jews in the synagogue. But there are some, there are some manuscripts that don't read Hellenist in verse 20. They read Greeks. So which is it? Did they preach to Greek-speaking Jews, or did they preach to Gentiles? There's a radical difference between those two. The meaning is probably that some of the Christians who had been caused to flee the church in Jerusalem because of the persecution, Christians from Cyprus and Cyrene, went into the Jewish synagogue and preached the gospel indiscriminately to the Jews who were there and to the God-fearing Gentiles who had assembled there. There would have been nothing unusual about them preaching to Hellenistic Jews. There were Greek-speaking Jews in the Jerusalem church. Remember those who brought to the elders or apostles the complaint that their widows were being neglected in the daily administration. Who were they? They were the Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews who were members of the Jerusalem church. If what is meant in Acts 11 was simply that the gospel was preached to Greek-speaking Jews, there was nothing extraordinary about that. But if the gospel was preached to God-fearing Gentiles who had not become proselytes and were not circumcised, and they were converted and added to the church, now that was something highly unusual. And I believe that that is what Luke is saying. Gathered in ordinary synagogues were Jews, Gentile proselytes, and what were called God-fearing Gentiles who had not actually embraced Judaism 
but found the God of Israel to be compelling. They were God-fearing Gentiles. They were Greeks. It seems to me that these people from Jerusalem who themselves were likely proselytes, coming to Antioch, went to the synagogue That's where evangelism always began, in the synagogue. And there they found an indiscriminate multitude before them. And they preached the gospel without making any distinctions. And the hand of God was upon them. And there were not only Jews who were converted, there were uncircumcised Gentiles who were converted. And suddenly, there was a church in Antioch. And that church was growing very, very rapidly. But in a very unusual way. When the news about this reached Jerusalem, it caused quite a stir. This was something that hadn't happened. Peter had been sent to preach the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius, and to his friends. But to have a church that was made up of Jew and Gentile as equal members, Gentiles that didn't qualify to be members of the synagogue were suddenly members of the Christian church. Well, that was a shock. And it caused ripples. So the apostles, having heard about this in Jerusalem, sent their best, their most unprejudiced, their most compassionate non-apostle to investigate and to give counsel about this situation. They sent Barnabas. Barnabas is a very attractive figure. He's a good man. One of the stories that I love best about Barnabas concerned Saul. After he had been converted and he came back to Jerusalem, the disciples were afraid of him. He wanted to come to church and they wouldn't let him come. And the apostles wouldn't allow him to come to their elders' meetings. So Barnabas went and got him. (laughs) Barnabas went and introduced himself and, as it were, took him by the hand and brought him in and introduced him to the apostles. That's the kind of man Barnabas was. He was a loving, tender, unprejudiced man. So Barnabas is sent to scope out this situation. And under the ministry of Barnabas, more people are converted, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 24, chapter 11, says, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so the church in Antioch was the first truly multi-ethnic church. And the Jerusalem Council was occasioned 
by Jewish believers or professed believers who took great exception to the equality of Jews and uncircumcised Gentiles in the membership of the Antioch church. And they came to Antioch and they said, you can't be a Christian and you can't be the member of a Christian church unless you are circumcised. Which led to the council in Jerusalem. So this is the first significant feature of the Antioch church. The first sending church was the first ethically mixed church of which we are aware. And I submit to you that was not coincidental. The church chosen to initiate foreign missions was the church which more than any other at that time reflected the mix of humanity in the world and the mix of humanity that will be in heaven. Now what can we do to become ethically mixed? I don't know. But I'm quite certain the first thing that we can do is want to be. We can want to be ethically mixed, diverse. And then we can pray about that. And then we can build relationships with people who are different. And we can take the gospel to them and pray for them and keep giving them the gospel, and who knows? Maybe they will be converted and added to our churches. And it would be a wonderful thing if people would come to our church in Mebane and see all kinds of people there. Well, that's what existed in the first missionary church. Point of identity number two. It was a church with a rich deposit of spiritual gifts. A rich deposit of spiritual gifts. If you turn back to chapter 13, verse 1, Luke writes, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, the Greek word can mean foster brother, close friend, not really sure what it means, and Saul. Five men are named as being specially gifted for public ministry, prophets and teachers. And one of them was apparently a black brother from northern Africa. Simeon, who is called Niger, which means black. Now this was not a feature of church life that the church could create for itself. It was the sovereign gift of Christ, these multiple spiritual gifts. 
but it probably reflected the multiple needs of a growing congregation. The church was growing. People were being converted. They needed gifted leaders and teachers, and Christ gave them. Point number three about this sending church. It was a young church, okay? It was a very young church, but it was a church that already had a history of sending and giving. Before the Holy Spirit said, separate Barnabas and Saul, this church had already proven itself as a giving, sending church. Go back to chapter 11, look at verse 27, Acts eleven twenty-seven. And in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of who? Barnabas and Saul. You get the picture. They had real prophets in those days who really did have an ability to foretell the future. Thank you. And one of them came to Antioch, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said there is a terrible famine that's going to grip all the world. And the people said, what are we going to do about ourselves? We need to store up some food. At least one of them said, oh, our brethren in Judea, They've already been impoverished by persecution and rejection. I don't think they can survive a famine. What can we do? Now, I can imagine, because I've been in a lot of meetings like that, I can imagine somebody saying, now, wait a minute, it may not be as bad as all that, We better store up some food for ourselves, and if it gets really bad, then we'll send some to Jerusalem. And somebody else says, do you realize how long it would take to get it there? A prophet from the Lord has said it's going to happen. We need to act before it happens. And they did. And it wasn't a matter of the church saying, well, if we ever want to make it into biblical history, we need to do something heroic so so Luke will write about us. They weren't trying to qualify for anything. They were the church being the church. The brethren spontaneously responded 
by saying, well, I can give X number of shillings or whatever. Somebody has said, well, I, I can give. And every man, according to his ability, made a contribution. And they put it into the hands of Barnabas and Saul and said, take it to Jerusalem. It's interesting. Jerusalem had given Antioch Barnabas. Now Antioch sends Barnabas back to Jerusalem with a much-needed material gift to alleviate the suffering of the church. That's the way churches are supposed to interact together. And it demonstrates the vision, the large-heartedness, the outward-looking component of the Antioch church. They weren't naval gazers. They weren't just thinking about themselves, looking at themselves. They were thinking about brethren who were undergoing very difficult times, and it was going to become more difficult. I can tell you as a pastor, there are a few things that are more exciting than to see God's people spontaneously do this kind of thing. Several years ago, there were terrible earthquakes in Haiti. Haiti is already perhaps the poorest nation on earth, certainly one of the top five. It was devastating. And we know some people who minister in Haiti, and it didn't come from the elders, okay? It came from the deacons. It came from the people. We've got to do something for Haiti. And an offering was taken, and it was shockingly liberal. Now, that's exciting. That's exciting. When when God's people don't have to be prompted, they don't have to be nudged, you don't have to use some kind of um, guilt manipulation. They just give because they're saints who are hurting. Antioch didn't have a model for doing this kind of thing. They were the first. But they wanted to give. That was their nature. They were a giving, liberal, caring church. Okay. Last point of identity in the text. The Antioch church was spiritually intense church. It was a spiritually intense church. I'm afraid that today they might be called fanatical. Go back to chapter 13. Look at verses 2 and 3. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now it's a brief text. Fasting is prominent. 
in this brief text. Do you know what fasting is about? Religious fasting. Christian fasting. You know what it's about? You know why Christians fast? Christian fasting is not a ritual designed to make us pious or to make us look pious. Okay? In fact, Jesus said, when you fast, don't tell anybody. Well, people are going to know how pious I am if I don't tell them I'm fasting. I mean, I've got to tell them. They're not going to be impressed that I'm fasting and praying if I don't tell them. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. It's not for appearance, and it's not a ritual designed to gain Piety. Fasting is an effort to eliminate distractions. It's an attempt to eliminate distractions so that we will be able to focus more clearly on Christ and on the activity of serving Christ. Fasting is the voluntary setting aside of lawful and normal activities like eating for the purpose of achieving a clear mind and a clear heart for prayer, for studying the Word of God, for doing kingdom work. You ever notice how dull you get after you eat? You say, yeah, I'm feeling that right now. It happens, right? We eat. All the blood goes to the gut to digest the food. And the brain is left empty and sleepy. So, if you want to listen tomorrow morning, don't eat. Kidding, kidding. But it's a fact. You pray better, it's easier, it's clearer if you don't have a full tummy. But it's not just, it's not just voluntarily foregoing food. It could be deciding you're not going to watch Netflix for a week so you can focus on prayer. Uh, Oh, you're not going to watch football on Saturday night so you can prepare for the Lord's Day. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just saying I'm giving you examples of what fasting is. It's foregoing normal, lawful activities, not sinful activities, voluntarily foregoing such activities so that your mind and heart are not cluttered. You ever fast so you can worship better, pray better, maybe listen to your spouse better. Fasting is associated to, with two spiritual activities in this text. Verse 2 
as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. What does that mean? Well, I'm pretty certain that's a reference to worship. Ministering to the Lord is a reference to their worship of Him. Now, what we don't know is whether the worship and fasting occurred only among these five leaders or among the entire church. It is possible that the entire church is in view under the leadership of these five spiritual men. Later, in conjunction with actually sending out their first missionaries, we read of fasting and prayer. Came time to lay hands, send Barnabas and Saul. They fasted so they could pray better. The point is that the church at Antioch, at least their leaders, but I suggest the entire church, was intensely spiritual. They understood that every success, every accomplishment that they hoped to achieve in the kingdom of God depended upon the blessing of God. Whatever else they do, they must seek the blessing of God. Perhaps they strategized, perhaps they planned. We're not told anything about that. Nothing wrong with strategizing and planning and drawing up maps and and various charts for how you're going to pay for mission. Nothing wrong with that. But we're not given any information about that. We are told that they set aside time for seeking God with such intentionality and intensity that they gave up eating food for a time so they could worship and pray without distraction. I think that's important. Beloved, listen. Don't ever forget that what is spiritually real in your church, what is spiritually real What is significant and lasting in your church will not be what you do. It will be what God does. Spiritual reality is God acting. So if we want to be spiritually real, if we want to have some reality coming down out of heaven, we must have the blessing of God. It doesn't just happen because we plan meetings, come together, plan some activities. That's not spiritual reality. The reality is what God does in our singing, what God does in our praying, what God does in our worship, what God does in our preaching. And if God doesn't do something, guess what? 
nothing of lasting consequence occurs. This church seemed to understand that. They must have God. God willing, we will continue this tomorrow morning. But for now, reflect upon the fact that the church in Antioch, first church to send foreign missionaries, according to the biblical record, possessed a fourfold distinction. It was multi-ethnic. It was a church blessed with a rich deposit of spiritual gifts. It was a church with a history of sending and giving spontaneously. And it was a church marked by intense spirituality. They sought God. They wanted God more than their daily food. More than their entertainment. More than their pleasures. I'm not surprised that God used that church. Is there anything here that perhaps you need as a church? Just ask me. Let's pray. Father, we want some of what you gave that church. We want your hand on us. We want people converted from every ethnic community. We want your church to be filled with people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, levels of social affluence or prominence, different colored skins, different ages, different taste in food or music. We want our churches to represent heaven. We want the world to be staggered by what you do so that Jesus might be honored. Father, we're not sure what you will have to do to bring that to pass, but for the honor of your Son, we ask that you do it. Amen.